Hello and welcome to the BBC Country Farm Magazine podcast, the podcast that explores the best of the British countryside. This episode, we return to the Timber Festival at the National Forest in Leicestershire to meet Lisa Fenton. She's a bushcraft specialist who is trained by Ray Mears and is an expert in foraging and tracking. Our own Eleanor Rosamond Barraclough joined Lisa for a walk and talk in the forest and to get a fox's eye view of the world and also learn some essential survival skills. It's about lunchtime. The, the glades are starting to fill with the smells of some pretty amazing foods, lots of spices and, and donuts and all the rest of it. Um, but with me is Dr Lisa Fenton, who I think would be able to survive quite happily without the food stalls, wouldn't you, Lisa? So, oh, of course, yes. <laughs> In the right season. <laughs> so, uh-huh. so tell me, I mean, all I can see right now, we're walking, well, through this beautiful, incredibly sunny, sunny glade, in the National Forest. I can see some, what's that, a few wild cherries from the trees? I mean... Yeah, although I wouldn't eat those cherries because they're a sort of ornamental cherry. Uh, so that's, that's sort of like runny tummy sort of yes, cherry situation. Yeah, they're, they're, they're poisonous. Um, however, I walked up here yesterday doing a tracking exercise with people and one of the first things I said was, oh, those fruits, will, everything else will be eating those at the moment because there's not much else around us in terms of fruits. Um, very soon we've just walked past um, some fox gas that's full of cherry pips um, and there was some bird scat over here that was full of cherry pips. Um, so lots of other animals are eating that and by using observation skills and tracking knowledge we can see what's eating what um, and just get to know our environment a little bit more intimately. Um, so tell me a little bit when when we're walking here when I'm walking through the forest I can see how beautiful and green it is and this lovely breeze is just starting to, to play over the top of the, the hill but with you with your tracking and bushcraft knowledge what sort of things do you see or feel or smell here that I might not? Um, well, so, for example, the oak tree, that looks like an oak tree in front of us. Um, I'd probably, if I was looking to see if there was any signs of uh, bird of prey or something like that, in this landscape, that's bigger than anything else. So I would head to that tree thinking, well, this would make a good roosting spot. And actually, I did this yesterday with a group and said, you know, I think... That tree over there, if I was a bird of prey, that's where I'd go. And sure enough, um, smattered across the undergrowth was the white markings of um, a bird of prey that, um, you know, had dropped its scat there. Um, and one of the participants said, are you sure that's not toothpaste? And I thought, well, actually, I'm not sure. It could be. <laughs> We're in the middle of a festival. So I had to go and check it out. and uh, See if it smelled minty. Yeah, I did. I did. <laughs> <laughs> Much was, to their amusement yeah. and disgust, yeah. And, um, but there was more of it throughout. I mean, it didn't smell windy, and there was more of it throughout the area. And then we found a barn owl feather, and then another feather. And then we found pellets that it had coughed up, and we were able to look in the pellets at what the owl had been eating, and we found the skulls of um, either a vole or a mouse. I'm not good enough to tell which it is. Some people are. They count the teeth, and that's how you find out. Um, so, um, so yeah, I guess I'd be looking at things like that. There's lots of kind of rabbit runs as we walk past into the undergrowth. There's also people runs who are obviously going to the toilet or something. Break under the trees, right? <laughs> um, um, and just actually where we're walking to now, if we carry along here, we'll go past um, a series of fox scats. Um, 
And one, one particularly I went over because I could smell fox. It was really, really strong. What did it smell like? Um, you might find out in a minute. Oh, great. Okay, well, let's... <laughs> it's, it smells really musky. Um, and so it like was a obviously... kind of big cat sort of thing. Yeah. So it's obviously scenting the area. And it's, this is obviously a regular, regular beast. And I'm guessing that that hedgerow will be full of mice and voles and rabbits. So, so that's kind of how I'm seeing the landscape through these signs and then piecing together the puzzles of what, what they mean. And so I guess I sort of form a picture in my head of, you know, at dusk or dawn or what have you, foxes going to be running along here. Um, the nocturnal creatures are going to be playing a game of dodge with him, probably. Um, yeah, I don't know if that... That definitely, yeah, it's, it's a kind of multi-sensorial picture, isn't it? It's yes. very different, whereas I'm really... I'm just looking at the green. The visual. Visual, yeah. exactly, that's yeah. it. And you're one of the founders of the Wood, the Wood Smoke School of Bushcraft and Wildness Survival, is that right, in the yes. Lake District? Yeah. So how did this happen? And tell me how Ray Mears was involved. Well, so um, when it was myself and my partner at the time, when we were at university, we both knew that we wanted to study this thing which was then very much called survival although survival didn't really describe it very well because survival was very like about big knives or it felt that way to a younger me you know, so is it that sort of uber macho yeah sort of yeah. topless diving off things exactly of, yeah. um which and, has its place of course. yeah and, and and you know military survival is very important um and the development of those skills and the development of resilience in different landscapes is important However, when I saw Ray Mears do uh, five-minute shorts on country tracks, I think it was, was that was it precursor to country file, country tracks, or something similar, um, we both instantly said, that's what I want to do with my life. So um, this was before the internet, just before the internet and before Google. So we wrote to the BBC, um, and about a year later, the BBC wrote back and gave us some contact details for Ray. Um, and we saved our student loans and uh, went and did some courses with him and said, this is what we want to do. And after a year of doing various things with him, he said, well, if you want to learn to do this, learn to do it properly and come and see what I do and apprentice me for a little while and see how we go. And that's what we did. So what sort of skills were you learning from him? And is, is that now what you teach? Yeah, it was um, UK based. So we weren't following him all over the world or anything like that. It was his company, which is called Wood Law. And, um, and, you know, it was a company set up to teach civilians. Um, a range. Decide, well, which way? Should we go right? Where's the best chance of fox scat? What do you think? We've just gone past, We've just gone past it. Do you want me to go oh, back? Yeah, let's go, let's go back. <laughs> if we, yeah. Oh, well, you can tell me about reindeers in a minute. So I did Let think me. I smelled, I was like, oh, is that a chemical toilet? And then I saw some chemical toilets. So I thought, oh, I'll have to... Um, there's some fox scat there. There, just like yeah. somewhere between dog and cat poo with the little seeds. Yes, it's got the ch it's got some of the cherry Toast pips. Down. This is a bit disgusting me poking it, but um, yeah, poking it with. Yeah. Um, so and what can you tell from that? Well, I can see that it's eating the cherry pips. I can see there's hair in there, so it's also eating probably rabbit. Oh, um, so that's not from say I don't know it cleaning itself. That's actually from yeah, that's from what it's ingesting and what. What also shows it to be fox is how it uh, twists. So it ha you can't quite see on here, but at the end of it, there's like a a, a tail to it. Oh, it's like someone's kind of like neatly pulled pulled yeah. the end of it off. It's yeah. Like, there we go. That's, that's a nice it. poo. Yeah. And um, 
And what the foxes, because it eats a lot of bones and crunches on stuff, the fox's gut is twisted. And as it, um, in the bowel, it'll twist the hairs and stuff from the animal around the bones so the bones don't pierce the bowel. And that creates this twisted look to it, which is quite distinctive like, um, in our landscape. Mr. Fox. Whippy's sort of. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I think it was a little, just a little bit further up here was that smell. Or was it? No, it wasn't there. I suppose it's so warm today, it might have dried yeah, out the and smell and everything. Was, it's not... Yes, it may well have done. I'll we'll just have a quick... Oh, and there's a bit more fox scatters. Yep. That, that, that's that looks very it. dried that's out, it. doesn't yep. it? I think this, wow. it was around here that I was getting that really musky, and I'm not getting it now. So, yeah. I mean, to be fair, it is sort of the middle of the day in July, right? If I it's... think it will have dried out, and it's yeah. a day or two old. So as we, as we walk around, tell me more about what were you learning then? Yeah, the so um, so we basically were learning the fundamental skills, things like uh, knife use, um, botanical uses for medicines, for um, what we can eat, um, what we can apply, all sorts of things, fungi, um, fungi, you know, there's a whole array of uses from fungi that you can use to sharpen your knife on, fungi you can use as plasters in an emergency. You can use a plaster? How do yeah, you use yeah. one as plaster? Yeah, and well, how would you know what sort to use? Well, that, you need to know what sort and, um, you know, there's a, a fungi that's a bracket fungus that um, is also often called, um, oh God, razor strop fungus. Um, and when you cut a section of that, it's absorbent and spongy, like an elastoplast, and it has some antimicrobial... Um, or antibacterial properties um, and a lot of things in nature do uh, you could use the resin from pine or fir similarly over something to it was once used over burns um, which protects it from um, bacteria in the air and infection and so on there's a lot there's a lot of medicines out there that you can use as bush medicine it's also of course something not to play with um, you know if you're getting into herbalism type approaches um yeah, you don't want to be dabbing any old mushroom no, on no, no, no. very badly wrong yes <laughs> and it's the same with a lot of these skills it's the they're not survival skills and so much as you really need quite a body of knowledge um and that gets built up over time the way you view the landscape changes over time and um you know it, it stops becoming all green and it starts firstly differentiating and then everything has a possibility, a potential, um, and in that potential and possibility, there's a relationship between you and all these different characters in the landscape. So that must be, I don't know, a very different approach because I mean, you didn't grow up surrounded by green. You grew up in North London, didn't you? Yeah. So I grew up um, in the North London sort of Hertfordshire and Essex borders, where they all kind of meet, um, and in a uh, urban environment. Um, but yeah, I, <laughs> I still struggle to answer how I went from there to here. But other than I just wanted to understand how we could um, live outside of that urban environment and live in nature. And that's so far been a lifetime journey. <laughs> Do you think there's something I don't know, quite psychologically powerful about being out in a more, I don't just want to say natural world, because I mean, humans are creatures of nature, nature just yeah. like everything else but Absolutely. I mean away from the urban jungle so to speak what, what effect does that have 
on you mentally as an animal? I think it is really empowering and it it shows that we have the potential, our senses particularly have potential far beyond what we would think in a day-to-day environment. Um, I, I often cite an example of when I was in America doing a sort of survival course where we went into landscape for two weeks with just one layer of clothing and that was it, not even a knife. Um, and I taught myself to tickle trout. Um, and, uh, and that's, that's you, you put your hand in the water. Yeah, and you pretend your hands are like rushes until um, the, the fish, you kind of find the fish and you brush on them and then you pretend your fingers are like rushes and eventually you can grab them. <laughs> and, you know, that was for me a really powerful moment because I had, I was able to provide for myself and others um, without any technology at all. And I think, I absolutely totally agree and I think it's really important we remember that we are natural beings, we're part of nature um, and therefore by extension urban environments it's it's contentious to call them unnatural environments <laughs> um, and I think the integration of these things are important but and even now we're, we're here but you can hear this plane flying overhead yeah. you can never escape yeah. modern technological life can you? and equally in an urban environment you can never really escape the natural world you know weather comes crashing in and suddenly you have extreme weather events or flooding or what have you and it doesn't matter if you're in a city you're not necessarily protected from that the stars are still there you know it's um I think it's... There goes a bike and a dog. <laughs> Having a lovely time. <laughs> so um, I think it's really important to try to move beyond that separation um, and try to integrate it and, and look at actually more about the point you were coming to about um, how we can feel like more natural beings, um, whatever environment you're in. And um, the bushcraft stuff, yeah, it absolutely um, did have an effect on empowering me in terms of my own place in the natural world and self-sufficiency to some extent without romanticizing it um, and I think that's possible in an urban environment too because there's lots of plants and things lots of people used to come and do courses um, and they would in the early days they'd come with a big knife and I want to make fire um, and by the end of a week they'd go away saying I want to learn botany and I want to learn about tracking <laughs> and, um, because they understood that it was that that was really the underpinning skills required and, and often people doing these courses are coming from an urban environment and you know, the emails we used to get afterwards were commonly saying I now can walk down my street in London and I know what all the trees are and I know what I can use them for and I think that's that's actually the important part of this. Um, so it's not just like us now. I mean, we're we're getting further and further off the beaten track. The grass is getting, well, knee-high, certainly, beneath us. And I don't know, there's more and more oak trees and brambles springing up. But, I mean, even then, on the other side, we have evidence of an awful lot of man-made... I don't even know, is that part of the quarry on the other side? I think it is, yeah. So, so again, it's it's... It's getting away from that idea of a separation, isn't it? Yeah, and, and if I was suddenly dropped into this little mini environment that we're looking at now, what's over the other side of that fence is just as important as, you know, I can immediately see firewood over there, which I can't immediately see on this side. Um, and, you know, there's other plants that will be springing through in an open environment. Um, so, yeah. So everything has its place and its purpose, basically. I, I, I think so. I... Um, 
I don't like to privilege. You know, I think I think these skills are ultimately pragmatic, um, and they move towards a way of looking at the landscape, which is, uh, for want of maybe a better word, a sort of traditional or indigenous um, view or lens. It moves towards it. I'm not saying it is it. Um, and when I've spent time with indigenous peoples, they might be able to make friction fire, but if they've got a box of matches or a lighter, they'll use the light. They're just ultimately pragmatic. <laughs> yeah, it's um, not about, oh, look how authentic and natural and and yeah. simple we are in our approach. It's just now we've got to get a fire lit, basically. Yeah, but that's not to say that, you know, we don't need to address things about technology and um, the urban world and production systems. Um, it's just to say I don't think it's helpful to completely label one thing as bad and ugly and awful and romanticise the other as... Um, they can be integrated. We were just talking on the rewilding panel about you know, people letting their back gardens um, rewild. And, you know, if everyone in a row of terraces did that, you've got a corridor. Um, so things effect. like hedgehogs can, can yeah. get through. They're not just stuck yeah. by those solid fences and all the rest yeah. of Yeah, so the two things can live better together I think. So tell me more about your PhD, it's in ethnobiology from Kent University's School of Anthropology yeah. and Conservation but what, what is ethnobiology? <laughs> so what were you doing? <laughs> so ethnobiology is um, kind of like a sub-discipline of anthropology that looks because obviously anthropology is a study of human culture and that could be uh, the study of why people do computer gaming. Um, it's, it's just study of culture. So ethnobiology is a subset of that that looks specifically at people's relationship with the natural world. Um, I've put that word in natural world, haven't I? Uh, yeah, but you were using from, the inverted commas with the yeah. <laughs> um, um, From the distant past to now. So it, there's a kind of archaeological aspect to it as well. Um, so it's still massive. It's still a massive subject and so it's looking at human environment relationships basically um, through the eyes of all sorts of different cultures. And you went all over the world in order to research this I mean what, what were your really standout places you visited? Well I in order to research the PhD I only actually went to different parts of America um, and to Sweden and then a lot of it was actually quite UK based um, because I was looking at bushcraft as a concept which hasn't been theorised yet um, and actually the the main place that bushcraft emerges historically is rather uncomfortably um, from uh, colonialism and imperialism and you know so coming out so? of the UK how does that work? <laughs> because um, pre-enlightenment you know during the enlightenment period you know we we had this we have Descartes talking about a um, mind-body split which turns into a nature-culture sort of dualism or split and our philosophies and our approach to science kind of cut us off from the natural world um, and then they went out to you know explore conquer settle trade <laughs> um, and in doing so when you look at the explorer journals um, and some of the field guides if you like the first field guides that come out of that era it's all about learning to relate to alien ecologies and in order to relate to those ecologies we had to use various indigenous peoples and their knowledge <laughs> um, if you go pre-enlightenment then really you're looking at just living skills the 
the folk skills that everybody had. Just to survive? Yes, just day-to-day living. Um, So, in a sense, bushcraft is is a modern concept, and in the contemporary world, it's sort of shifted again into perhaps an educational concept, a, um, a potential tool to help people reconnect with their landscape in a, but doing the inverted commas, in a more indigenous way. <laughs> but this also might then explain your point about this started off as like survivalist, uh-huh. quite manly, yep. it's, it's that yeah. idea of conquering nature. Yep. Oh, and there we go, look, so what's that? Big bird of prey that's just oh, flying that's overhead. Is that a buzzard? Or? I think that's a buzzard, yeah. It's got a big chest coming quite a lot. It has, yeah. Wow. They, they, I think it's this time of year they molt the oh, Which could feathers. explain why half the feathers on one yep. of the wings is missing. It's, well, it is, I mean, we're getting yeah, further and further into it. In fact, we're just about to <laughs> hit another wood, aren't we? A chestnut uh-huh. wood, or is that? So, but yeah, I mean, it, it, this doesn't feel like the sort of landscape that you would try and conquer it's something you live with you manage yes I mean there's a difference there isn't there? yeah there's a fundamental uh, fundamentally different approach to well I just decided we're just trying to yeah there's a big private property somebody it's okay that's behind that fence so talk about managing and uh-huh, controlling. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah so there's a fundamental divide in the approach between survivalism and bushcraft and survivalism is born out of a fear a fear of the natural environment, a fear of being overwhelmed by it somehow. I've got a kill site down there. Oh, there we go. Lots of little feathers. <laughs> yeah. So what do you think of the passing? What, what's been I'd have to have there? another look. Just uh, lots of pathetic, yes, tiny little are, bird feathers. They <laughs> oh. are, aren't they? Oh dear. It looks like it's been killed by a bird of prey. and Maybe that buzzard that went over mm. us. Gosh, and then I've just seen a load of fox scat back there as well. So yeah, it's amazing how I'm quickly sure this will be a regular beat. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the thing. And the, the, this shift, this transformation in people does happen quite quickly. You know, when they first come on a course and they're stumbling around the woods because they're still walking like they're on pavement. But by day two or three, there's an obvious shift. And by the end of a week, there can be really quite a profound transformation in, in people, um, which I guess is what's driven me to study this further and further. <laughs> well, um, I, I always wonder because, I mean, it feels like when humans are born, they're born, I don't know, almost like they're still prehistoric. And uh, now by the age yeah. of two or three, you see toddlers swiping left and right on any screen that moves. It's, it's almost like their brains are having to catch up with the future. But, I mean, since you got into bushcraft, you had a... You had a, a little son, yeah. yeah. Do you find that when you see how small children are, say in the woods, out of an urban environment, is it more of a sense of, ah, oh, yeah, this is this is what humans should be doing? Yeah, I suppose I've got to say yes to that. I mean, <laughs> uh, I think I think that's not again not to. I think mothers have to deal with enough anxiety about parenting without layering on. They, you know, they shouldn't be too much in a urban environment or in the home and you have to always get them outside but I think some connection to the natural world um, is really beneficial for their personal development and their resilience Um, and so things like the rise of forest schools um, is fundamentally a good thing (laughs) a great thing Um, I think it's interesting I remember a moment with my son Finn who when he was about two um, him picking a wild daisy out of a field 
and somebody walking past and muttering under their breath, you know, you shouldn't allow your child to pick wild plants. And <laughs> but I remember thinking, you know, it's common sense, it's a common plant, and by him finding that thing interesting and beautiful and being able to pick it and actually handle it and bring it home, I think is a really important thing rather than saying, no, it, rather than instilling a look but don't touch attitude. Um, I think engagement, allowing that engagement, you know, within, obviously you don't want them to go and pick something rare, but... Um, yeah, it's just that sense but, that it's part of your environment, yes. isn't it? Yeah. And this, you know, it stems from this idea that we have um, sort of arising with the camping leave no trace movement which arises out of this idea of fortress conservation you know just keeping everyone out um let nature do its thing and that's why we have to be careful with rewilding as well um you know the allowing it to be part of an urban landscape as well is really important but yeah that sort of leave no trace camping thing which is what distinguishes bushcraft from camping um of you know going into an environment and being insulated uh in a tent bubble with a camping stove um, and so on. It, it's necessary, um, you know, I am a pragmatist. However, it, we can't deny, I can't deny that I feel it, it separates people from a working knowledge of the land, which is an, a skill-based engagement. Like truck feels Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or just making a fire in the, you know, um, I couldn't hand on heart advocate that we should all be able to make fires. I live in the Lake District, you know, if everyone came and made a fire. Um, unfortunately, it's not really part of our culture, and so the place could get really trashed. <laughs> um, however, philosophically, um, I also have to say that being able to make a fire um, brings together a lot of skills, which require an understanding of landscape and... Uh, um, an in-depth knowledge and skill base related to the natural world um, that otherwise gets denied when we wrap everything in a bubble and say that it's it's more environmentally conscious when actually you know that gas stove was made in a factory and da 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 and travelled them. You know, <laughs> so, yeah. so there's a there's a there's a discussion there, I yeah. suppose, and always a balance. To yeah. Had. But so what about a landscape like this? I mean, we've got. Obviously, we're, we're in a forest environment, which means we've got a lot of trees, some very mature, some young oaks and, and birches. I can see limes in full flower because it's July. And then we've got the open, open green of the, the nettles and the dock and the, the different grasses. I mean, what sort of bushcraft would be useful for you to teach me? in a place like this. Yeah. If we're, we're out here... Just right next to us, we've got all these nettles, which at this time of year are perfect for learning how to make string, cordage from. Oh, so how can you make string from nettles? Yeah, you can... Um, I'll just do it quickly. <laughs> just... You can... Ooh, and that's not going to sting you, picking that... Or it is and you don't care? What's... No, it is going to sting. Ooh. I mean, it isn't going to sting me unless I grasp it wrong. So you're just stripping the leaves away yeah, really so quickly what i'm doing is crushing the little, little the little things. the bits that have the sting in them um and instead of going right at right angles i'm kind of sweeping up and that just pushes them flat and crushes them and disarms <laughs> them essentially <laughs> so you you, you haven't been stung at all that i did get stung just once there when Ooh, i went down when you went forward yeah. but yeah okay um, so now you've got this lovely what's that i don't know oh, 
how, how long is that? Like the, the, the length from your, this, this is, your finger to your elbow yeah, or something. Yeah, it's quite short compared to what I would have normally picked. I'd go for one of the longer ones. And then I'm just going to put my fingernail in the stem and flatten it out, open it up. Because the fibres I want are on the outside and I want to get rid of this pithy centre. I see that, that green stringy bit, that's not actually very useful at all. You're not just... in the middle, no. Um, you're and just left so, with that lovely purple outside. Yeah. We'll get there in a minute. Uh, trying to be quick. <laughs> <laughs> this is impressive. Um, so, and you know, this just teaches a basic principle that you can apply to all sorts of fibres in this landscape and other landscapes. So it's just again about noticing what's possible in your environment. So now I've flattened it, I'm just going to try and snap that centre out. So all those fibres that are running up the centre, you're just stripping them away that. with your nail. Yeah. See, I would look at a stinging nettle, I just think, right, that's something to be avoided. Yeah. But no. Oops. Well, they used during wartime, because um, it's part of the hemp family. It's not coming out very easily, actually. Um, sometimes it just kind of snaps, but without a knife to kind of scrape it out. But you are just being left difficult. with these bigger... Yeah. Sort of longer structures, isn't it? Yes. That's holding the nettle so together. So it's those fibres on the outside that I'd be after. And then you need to dry them out, ideally, if you're really going to use it for string. So on a day like today, you'd put them over the fence post there and in okay. an hour, oh, they'd be dry. Yeah. Um, and then you twist them into And then you twist the fibres all together. Yeah. And that's string. And then you can just use that for whatever you need whatever it for. Whatever you need it for. Um, Again, there's this sort of macho thing about knives and hunting, but you know, actually, if you can make string, yeah. you can make fishing line, you can make snares, you can. So you forget can make the knives. Yeah. Because, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can... It's these little techniques that actually work, and then you. Twist and you're it. just having twisted it. You're then twisting both halves to yeah. into each other, so it's yeah. double, as it were. I haven't properly got rid of the pith, so this would be pretty rubbish in actuality. <laughs> I'm just right, trying to quickly give you the principle. <laughs> that is um, amazing. And but this can be really, really fun. I mean, you can make clothes out of. You can spin it out. Um, you can spin yeah, nettles. Yeah. Um, See, because right, I look at this and I would look at the longer grasses and I would think, well, that's that's the thing that's going to be nearest to a, a piece of string. I'll just take that and try and use it. But that. Yes. That's no, nowhere near. No, it's the nettle. Um, <gasps> that is amazing. Yeah. Gosh. So, so so it's all around us. We've got a big thistle there, which. The roots of thistle um, are, have got a lot of carbohydrate, a lot of energy in them. You can just toast can them just on the fire. You can them. You can yeah, just eat You take off the outer rind and you can eat the centre. It's almost They're like quite... an artichoke or something. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And actually the top, um, when it forms a big flower, yeah. if you kind of pull the flower off of it, there's a little button in there which is a bit like artichoke. Yeah. You can eat that. Yes. Can... Yeah. Gosh. So, um, I mean... It... It, are all these things reliant on being able to create fire or are there things no. that you can just eat here now? Yeah, um, I mean nettles, you can just pinch, I'm not going to, you can actually, my son does this quite a lot, just pinch the top off and eat. You can just um, pinch the, and it yeah. doesn't sting you too bad. You've got to know how to eat it properly. <laughs> You've got to jump down on it pretty quick, that's why I don't like doing it but my son does You've it. You've got a brave kid. Um, and uh, what else could you eat without cooking? Because cooking does often get rid of toxins and make things... More well, let's stick to cooking palatable. then. What, what round, as we're walking, let's, let's continue down this lovely grassy over, path. Is that, that's not, I thought that was horse chestnut. It's not, it's the bird cherry, isn't it? Isn't it? No, that's a horse, it's, it's it's a a horse, horse chestnut, chestnut, I think, yeah. Um, my my, my, it's, it's my vision's light. getting a bit rubbish. <laughs> no, um, we've got the sun directly. Horse so horse, horse chestnut has a, 
a chemical in it called ascalin and it's concentrated in the actual horse chestnuts the actual the, the, yeah. the kind of spiky balls you yeah get forming. but when you open those up and you, you know this the conkers i'm getting yep. there conkers. <laughs> um, <laughs> in a long day um, um in the conkers and the this, this chemical ascalin is used in other parts of the world with other species that also have it for um um for a fish poison so you crush it up, um, you put it into a fairly still area that's got fish in it, and it deoxygenates the water and the fish rise to the top. You skim off the ones you want, um, and eventually it, um, it oxygenates again, and the ones that you don't want come back and swim off as well. <laughs> so you've just uh, got a ready food supply right there. Yeah, and the horse chestnut, you'll see it in products, skin products, you know, it's good for things like varicose veins, it can be used um, as some protection. Um, so there's, there's lots of stuff around, brambles, a common bramble we're walking past, that's another So that's the, the blackberry before mm -hmm. the blackberry, basically. Yeah. So what um, can you do with that? Again, straight. You can eat, yep, you can eat the tips just straight off, they're a little bit coconutty. So earlier in the year, um, you can just pull the, off the, the, the bramble tips. The flowers or the... They're just green earlier in the year before so we can the see new there, shoots. The, yeah. the end bits there where you just, yep. just tiny little yeah, leaves. Yes, exactly. But you would do that earlier in the year when they're still buds um, and they have a sort of a coconutty taste. Almost like gorse. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the stems can be used for string it's, it's similar to that you want the outer fiber so you've got to get the thorns off and in the old days they would take like an old wool jumper an old wool hat which would catch the thorns and just skim it through and then you can <laughs> um, just cut to the chase as it were yeah or you can do that and then weave like weave a basket or a fish trap or whatever you want with the stuff that so it, you know the the nettles there's lots more you can do with them as well so each plant has a lot of different uses depending on the time of year um which part of it you want to use and um what so are the resources you have how far did these skills then go back historically i mean where are we drawing this information from as we step over another <laughs> fox gap but you're seeing them everywhere now <laughs> um, well i mean i guess it was Really, it was sort of what we call folk knowledge, which is another way of saying indigenous knowledge, really. Um, and at one time, it was everybody's knowledge. It was the folk, it was peasant knowledge. Um, and I suppose once we started the clearances so that the commons disappeared um, and people were sort of pushed into the industrial centres uh, in order to make a living because they could no longer use the commons, um, the knowledge started to die away and in a way we kind of the colonial processes that we've visited upon other cultures we actually did it to ourselves first you know we separated the the common people the folk people from the land that they knew how to use in order to support their livelihoods um, so then i mean are there skills that we have to look to other countries yeah. to get? I'm, I'm, yeah. You mentioned Sweden earlier. Tell me, tell me more about what you found in Sweden. Yeah, so, um, and I suppose this was a process that it, it felt like for a long time, you know, Ray was doing reasonably, I'm sure he wasn't the only person doing this, but it felt like, from my perspective, was doing almost single-handedly, was looking at these different cultures and saying, well, you have a plant that's in the same plant family, seems to have similar structures and you're using that for string there so 
you know, that was probably used in this landscape fishing. So we, or fire by friction, you know, you're using that technique, would that technique work here? So there's a lot of experimenting going on, and there still is. Um, but back then, very few people were doing it, and Ray was one of the few, from what I could tell, who were. Um, and so, yes, there is this looking to other cultures. And um, Sweden, I guess, you have this, the Sami um, culture there. And that's the sort of semi-nomadic people yeah. who are often yeah. associated with the further northern part yes. of Sweden and the rest of Scandinavia. But you also have still quite a strong folk tradition in Sweden. And really, I suppose we took a lot of, in UK bushcraft sense, we took a lot of the Swedish craft skills and the, the way that they use knives, the way they use axes, um, the way they look at the environment um, in terms of green woodworking. So instead of saying, right, we're going to cut this oak, season it, and then mill it into chair legs and chairs and what have you, they would go and look at the green tree and say, oh, that limb, you know, that would make a perfect shape for the stool I want to make or the perfect shape for a spoon or a ladle. And would they have to season it still or could they no. use it? So if you use the wood green, then it's much softer. Um, so they would be looking for the shape in the environment and then carving it um, green um, and then seasoning it. Um, and so, you know, it's something that's become very popular now in, in the UK. There's a lot of people doing what we, we call treen, which is uh, kind of like making spoons and spatulas and butter knives and kind of domestic products from little bits of hedgerow coppicing and, you know, people who know how to take this stuff without destroying the tree or the plant. Um, and it's become really popular and I find, I looked into that a little bit in my thesis and found that, you know, in a, again, in a very r rural country, I mean, sorry, urban country, um, it's almost like a little bit of reclamation of connection and um, seasonality, you know, wild foods has become really interesting to people and it takes them through the seasons um, and it genuinely gives a connection back to the natural world and you know, that feeling of, I'm interested in, you know, when is that going to come into season? Oh, it's fungi season, come on kids, you know, or, I'm going to be a bit careful with that, but, uh, um, you know, it's uh, spring and we've got all, you know, these types of foods we can go and collect, or what have you, but um, it creates a bit of a connection and people often reported that they enjoyed passing this on to their children as well. So what do you think's going on? in today's society i mean we're more technology driven we're more globally connected is yeah. is it something about needing a slower more rooted pace of life or is that is that a bit too simplistic i don't think that's simplistic i think i think technology i'm not anti-technology at all um however um there's an anthropologist called tim ingold um, who's, Aberdeen. Yes, who um, has got to be one of my favourite anthropologists. His work's fantastic. Um, and he gives this great example of um, the Sami, uh, northern Sweden, reindeer herdsmen, um, and their ropes that they use to... And he contrasts that with their food processor and looks at what kind of knowledge do you need. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he's basically saying... You know, we tend to, or we've tended to in the West, privilege um, so sophisticated, what we would call sophisticated technologies, over simple technologies. You know, as a kind of 
primitive or unsophisticated. Um, but actually, for the reindeerman, when you think about the kind of knowledge he needs um, to go out, you know, if you or I was to go out with a bit of rope to go and catch a reindeer in the middle of the tundra, um, what kind of knowledge would you need? Well, you'd need skill that had been built up over a lifetime and was very embodied. And if that rope broke or snapped, it probably wouldn't be a problem. It would be pretty easy to fix. So you've got a simple technology. And then if you go to the food processor, you know, you, 30 seconds it takes to learn to press a button. But if that food processor stops working, how many people could honestly fix it? You know, because our knowledge is so fragmented. And what he's essentially doing is saying, the reindeersman's knowledge is holistic. Um, it's resilient, it's replaceable. It's, whereas the kind of knowledge that we have, um, based on sophisticated technology, is fragmented knowledge, it's not holistic, it's, you know, there might be some people who understand parts of it, but no one understands the whole, and I think that's where the technological issue comes in, um, that it's very fragmented, and there's an issue around reliance on technology that we can't understand, fix, or replace as individuals, or... There's a fragility in it, isn't yeah. there? It's not... It, I don't know, it, it's not self-sustaining at all, is yeah. it? Um, so, yeah, I think as a principle, it's about fragmentation of knowledge in a way. And I think what bushcraft and these sorts of skills can do is bring us as individuals back to... I'm not suggesting our whole culture goes back in time, but um, as individuals, it can bring us back to a more holistic understanding of landscape and ourselves. And when you do these courses, when people come along, do you think ultimately that's the message that you want them to leave with, or they come seeking? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think so. I think, I think there's, um, I think it, it speaks to. I think Bushcraft skills speak to a, a range of things. Well, quite a small range. You know, it, it speaks to health and well-being in relationship to the outdoors. It speaks to education. Like forest schools, a different way of being educated it's not quite the same as the classroom um, and um, it speaks to um, nature connection I'm using those words with inverted commas because you know we've talked about what is nature and how do you measure a connection you know it's very subjective um, however I think most people do understand broadly what we mean when we say nature connection and I think that connection brings about um, wellness uh, yeah and understanding and perhaps there's something in there in terms of climate crisis and breakdown and you know um a grassroots relationality well it's it's probably quite easy to hear we've headed back from off the beaten track in the forest straight into the heart of the the <laughs> festival there's there's more humans there's more noise but i mean there is also just this sense of humans as even here being part of that natural space rather than apart from it isn't it yes yeah it's a really lovely festival from that perspective it's, it feels very integrated with the forest scapes around it um i think we should go and enjoy it a bit more than shouldn't we <laughs> i think so <laughs> i think so <laughs> well a huge thank you to lisa and Eleanor for that wonderful adventure in the forest it was so so interesting 
Uh, you can visit the National Forest anytime. It's in the Midlands and it runs really between sort of Leicestershire, Nottinghamshire, Derbyshire. It's all a big band of a central swathe of the country. Um, they have a website, nationalforest.org, to find out a bit more. And the Timber Festival, which Eleanor attended, returns in 2020 on the 3rd to the 5th of July. There's also a website for them, uh, that is timberfestival.org.uk. So tune in next time for more adventures in the countryside. And in the meantime, take a look at our website, countryfile.com, for all your countryside needs. And don't forget, we have a smashing print magazine available in most big supermarkets and newsagents, and you can also subscribe online. Well, thanks for listening, and goodbye for now. Bye-bye.